I have two readings tonight, one Old Testament, one New Testament. Psalm 32 is where we will begin. Psalm 32, yet another uh, psalm rejoices in the blessing of having sins forgiven. Psalm 32, God's holy word. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place and will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. Then Romans chapter 4. And head to the New Testament. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. God's holy and inspired word. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Then I'd like to read Article 23 in our Confession of Faith, page 80, back of the hymnal. I've got us going all over tonight. This is exciting stuff. Article 23. 
wherein our justification before God consists. We believe that our salvation consists in the remission of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein our righteousness before God is implied, as David and Paul teach us, declaring this to be the blessedness of of man, that God imputes righteousness to him apart from works. And the same apostle says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we always hold fast this foundation, ascribing all the glory to God, humbling ourselves before him, and acknowledging ourselves to be such as we really are, without presuming to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours, relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone which becomes ours when we believe in him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread without following the example of our first father, Adam, who, trembling, attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. And verily, if we should appear before God, relying on ourselves or on any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas be consumed. And therefore, everyone must pray with David, O Jehovah, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight no man living is righteous. Much to the chagrin of my father, I know almost nothing about cars, automobiles, um, He's not so much an under-the-hood kind of guy, but he, he knows all about uh, collecting and what makes cars valuable, what are the, the coolest muscle cars of American history. And I, I do know that something that's of value in this market or this culture is the idea of a, an all-original car. Everything is original. Everything is authentic. That there are people who can certify this kind of thing. Come along, make sure all the numbers match up. There can be certificates of authenticity. It really helps if you have a, a bill of sale. You can show that you've owned the car the whole time, had no work done on it. If someone were to change the engine or change the interior or uh, change anything that they like and still retain this classification of original or authentic, that would, it would be meaningless, the classification, right? It, it has to all be what was there when the car first came off the assembly line. Otherwise, it is not truly original. When we talk about the doctrine of justification, a, a challenge that has presented the church throughout the ages is that... Uh, This term has always been around, but there has been this tendency to to go to the inside of it, change things around, redefine the term itself, sort of change the ingredients, and then say that we're still talking about justification. And we really have to understand that we're not when that happens. It's, It's important to understand how the Bible defines this word. And how the Bible defines it and uses it shows us exactly what this blessed doctrine means, this doctrine of justification. And it's for that, for that reason we turn to the, the scriptures tonight and seek God's blessing and favor and aid as we attempt to understand the gospel 
in uh, more meaningful ways and in life-transforming ways. Necessary prelude to the doctrine of justification is uh, knowledge of our sin. And I hit on that a lot, and I've been hitting on that a lot as we've made our way through the confession here. We're kind of in that stage. We're talking about uh, redemption. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about being made new in Christ. And unless we know and are convinced that we are sinners, then all of these things will have no depth of meaning, these things like the doctrine of justification. It will never compel us to give God all of the glory. James Buchanan is a, a one of the, has one of the best historical works on justification, and he says this, that the best preparation for the study of this doctrine is neither great intellectual ability, we don't need to be you don't need to be a genius to understand this. This is something that we all can understand. Nor much scholastic learning. You don't have to read a hundred books on it to understand it. But rather a conscience impressed with the sense of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God. A deep conviction of sin is the one thing needful in such an inquiry. A conviction of the fact of sin as an awful reality in our own personal experience, of the power of sin as an evil cleaving to us continually and having its roots deep in the innermost recesses of our hearts, and of the guilt of sin, past as well as present, as an offense against God, which once committed can never cease to be true of us individually. Once we've sinned, we are sinners. Once we've sinned, we are sinners before God. And which, however he may be pleased to deal with it, that is our sin, has deserved his wrath and righteous condemnation. When we're impressed with the reality of our sinfulness as a fact, as an experience, as something that brings forth guilt, then we realize what the scriptures tell us is that we are, as human beings, and as sinful human beings, we are in danger because of our sin. We are in actual danger. This past week, we were all in danger from the cold. So I thought it would be nice to sing uh, safely through another week. Right, God's hand of, of blessed providence is, is upon us always. We need to remember that. It was seriously dangerous to go out into the cold to risk exposure. It was nothing to, to mess around with. It takes very little time for the human body in such conditions to start uh, freezing. If you're careful... Uh, you were told to, to bump up your furnace. You were told to, to check the furnace exhaust pipes, make sure that they're not being blocked by ice buildup and all those kinds of things. Go outside and run your car for a couple of minutes if you can. All of these things would be uh, precautions that would be taken if somebody was convinced of the seriousness of the conditions. Are you convinced or are you rather careless about it? Now, James Buchanan has this distinction about what kind of a sinner are you? Are you a convinced sinner or are you a careless sinner? He says this, No change is more striking or more instructive than that which is often produced instantaneously on all a man's views of the method of salvation when from being a careless he becomes a convinced sinner. The trick is, in light of Scripture, that we need to be convinced sinners and not careless sinners. And to understand that there is, a, there's, there is danger because we are sinful. And that causes us to treat all of these matters of salvation with much more seriousness. 
It leads to a solemn and a serious question. How shall a sinner be righteous before God? How shall a sinner be just before God? And the answer is justification. Justification is how a sinner is to be accounted righteous before God. We see this at the beginning of our passage this evening. What was it that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, found? What was that that he found in this matter? The use of that word found is that uh, what he found was a God who bestows a blessing, a, a status by his grace. That is what Abraham found. He found a God who bestowed a new status by his grace. So as we look to this passage and the scriptures tonight, we will see that justification is a word, a term that has to do with judgment or a a judicial status before God. That's the first idea. The second is that justification is an act of God by imputation. We'll unpack what that means, but it's an act of God by imputation. And then finally, it is an enduring privilege of the believer. So it's an act of God, and it's a privilege of the believer. So we read in our passage first uh, regarding what kind of a a term is justification. In verses 2 and 5 in our passage in Romans chapter 4, that's where we see the word justify or to justify. Uh, This is coming on the heels at the end of Romans chapter 3, where Paul has finished pronouncing his his worldwide uh, condemnation of the world in light of their sin. All people, Jews and Gentiles, where they explicitly have the law written down and they don't, all are sinners and all mouths are to be shut up before God because that is the truth at the foundation of every single human being. So this word to justify is then brought forth at the end of Romans chapter 3. Paul says there's there's another righteousness. There's another righteousness that has been manifested apart from the law. And God justifies, that is, he declares and makes righteous by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this word to justify, you see it in scripture a lot, it means to give a positive verdict. Almost in in like a courtroom type scene seen. A positive verdict rather than a negative one. It's a term that has these these legal threads attached to it. We see this by uh, the opposite word that scripture uses to justify. The word uh, justifies opposite is to condemn. The opposite of justify is to condemn, to receive a judgment of condemnation, a negative verdict in a courtroom setting rather than a positive verdict. Deuteronomy chapter 5 says this, If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, justifying the innocent and condemning the guilty. Right? The, the innocent will be justified, the guilty will be condemned. They are opposites. Proverbs chapter 17, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Justifying the wicked, condemning the righteous, those are abominations uh, because you would justify the righteous and you would condemn the wicked. Romans chapter 8 says, It is God who justifies, right? God gives a positive verdict. Who is to condemn? If God gives a positive verdict of his people, then who is to condemn? So you see, the opposite of justify is condemn. 
Second, justify has words that are related to it. You might say like uh, cousins of the word to justify. And the words that are related to it are words like judge or bring a charge. They all have to do with these legal type courtroom scenes. Psalm 143 says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. To you see this idea of righteousness and judgment. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, right? Who can come into the courtroom of God and say, this person is guilty if God has already condemned, or if God has already pronounced that person righteous. Justifies opposite is to condemn. Its cousins are to bring a charge or to lay a charge. And then finally, by its equivalence, the the, the twin terms of justification, which is to count or to credit, which we see in Romans chapter 4. It says in our passage, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is functionally the equivalent of the word to justify. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, functionally the equivalent of justification. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. We lay all this groundwork for a very specific reason. But from all of these texts, what we see that is that justification, it may be more, but it is not less than a legal term. It's the idea of coming into the courtroom of God and having a positive verdict pronounced. It's the opposite of condemnation. It's related to a process of judgment, and it is the equivalent of being credited as righteous. So we must understand this word in the light of all of these things. This is how the Bible describes and defines this word. Important to keep that in mind. So, justification then is an act of God. It is God's act by imputation. Imputation and not infusion. We'll define what that means and show what that means. In the, the medieval Roman Catholic view, what's historically been understood as the Roman Catholic view, and what really has been a position that has come up as a problem in the Protestant churches over the last several years, is that there are two justifications. The Christian life has two justifications. Now, this is a wrong view, what I am describing here. The first justification is said to be by faith. But it is not God pronouncing a a positive verdict upon the sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. Rather, one's first justification is where God expels our original sin. He brings about a moral change within us. He uh, vanquishes our corrupt nature and erases our corrupt nature. To those who hold this view, they would say that when we are justified, it's not that God says we are not guilty and that God credits us as righteous, but rather all of our habits of sin are expelled and God creates in us habits of grace and charity and love. They say that the cause of this is the work of Christ. But what it actually does is that it creates in us that which ultimately saves us. It ultimately comes down to the works of the human being in order to be saved. We are said to cooperate with God's grace. We cooperate with grace. And that, at the final judgment, brings about a second justification 
where uh, the, the one who is said to be justified will have their works laid before God, and God will look upon their human works that are done in cooperation with grace, and he will pronounce them as righteous. So there's two justifications in this view, which is a wrong view. What we should see is that this doctrine of justification, which is an error, is in many ways similar to our doctrine of sanctification, where we have this doctrine of a changed life, a transformed life, God bringing about good works by his grace, and we will study that beginning next week. Reformed people usually don't talk about the language of God expelling our original sin or erasing our original sin, but we do say that sanctification is an ever-deepening realization that God has vanquished the power of sin in our lives. He's taken away the tyranny of sin. He's by the power of His Spirit conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, leading us all the way through our life in Christ, so that at the end... God has a sanctified believer, not a perfectly sanctified believer, but one who loves the Lord more then than at the beginning. As our catechism says, it is a a small beginning. So we see how these ideas are overlapping, but with different words. We say that sanctification is God's ever-deepening love in us and causing us to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Others would say that that is justification. It is a process. We need to understand how important it is that we go to where Scripture goes and land where Scripture lands on this issue because this, these are foundational gospel issues. Reformed sanctification is such a, a blessed doctrine because it is working always out of the position of our justification. That God has looked at us, the believer who is trusting in Christ, and by faith he has said, your sins are forgiven and you are perfectly righteous before me. There is nothing else that you can do to add to your status before God. One of the best pictures of this, I think, is the, the idea of the Christian week. The first day of the week is Sunday. And we rest on the first day of the week as a reminder of the work of Christ. The first day of the week. We don't work all week to then attain rest. Rather, we rest first, which is a wonderful picture of the gospel. Because we rest in the finished work of Christ to remind ourselves that whatever we do, by God's grace, if it's in obedience and if it is pleasing to Him, it does not add to our justified state. God has already looked upon the believer cleansed all of his or her sins away, accounted him or her as righteous, and nothing can be added to that. So Reformed sanctification is an absolutely essential part of the Christian life, but it flows out of that perfectly complete status before God. A foundational gospel issue. We see that it is not a process, but rather it is an act of God, a once-for-all act. Reformed confessions talk about justification being an act, sanctification being a work, an ongoing process. Here's James Buchanan again. Considered as an act of God who justifies the ungodly, it is not a subjective operation producing a moral change in our character. 
but it is invariably accompanied by renewing and, and sanctifying grace. But it is an act of God which is external to us and which brings about an immediate and permanent change in our relation to God. It brings about a permanent and immediate change in our relation to God. That is what it means to be justified. It's once for all, it is an act of God, and it happens by imputation, which in other words means he does not count our sins against us, and he counts the righteousness of Christ to us. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He deals with us according to the righteousness of Christ. It's a big word, imputation, may sound like a, 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 big, uh, a big idea, but really we already know how these things work. We see these analogies will be crude, but we understand how imputation and non-imputation work. I had a friend who uh, recently had a certificate of deposit run out at his bank, and he got the 10-day grace period, right? You've got to figure out what you're going to do if you're going to cash it out or if you're going to re-up it. And because of a death in his family, the window of time passed him by. And he just didn't have it in the front of his mind. So he goes to his bank. He apologizes. He says, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I, I, I forgot about this 10-day grace period. Uh, they said they were going to charge him a, a, a large fee to try and cash out the certificate of deposit. He said, I, my family and I were grieving. We just we weren't thinking about this. So the, the bank people are have a little huddle. They're talking about it. What should we do? What should we do? They decide to waive the fee, right? They did not impute this error to my friend. They said, we're going to waive the fee because of the circumstances that you found yourself in, right? We know what non-imputation looks like. A, a fee is waived. Say, so we understand this time. That's a crude analogy, but important to understand that God simply does not deal with us according to our sins, because of Christ. Rather, he credits us righteousness. Sprint called me a couple of months ago. They said, hey, we're doing this big merger. I forget what company it was, but the service in, the, in Chicagoland was terrible. It was awful for three weeks. We had uh, almost all of our calls being dropped constantly. Very, very annoying, very hard to deal with. Sprint calls me and says, hey, we're going to give your account a $30 credit because of all the bad service you've been experiencing, right? I didn't necessarily do anything to deserve that credit, but they say, we're going to impute that to your account. It's another crude analogy, but if Sprint didn't have to do that, they wanted to do that in order to say they appreciated us as customers. We understand non-imputation and imputation. This is what the Bible says God does in justification. He does not count our sins against us. He credits us the righteousness of Christ. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. Psalm 130. If you should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, not imputing their trespasses against them. I am he, says Isaiah 43. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. You are a sinner, but God does not treat you as such in your justification. 
All of your sins, inherent and actual, secret and public, they are wiped from the record. You are no longer guilty before God because of justification. But that is not all. We need something more, don't we? We need the righteousness of Christ. It is not just bringing us back to Eden. It is giving us the performance of someone who has done the very opposite of what Adam did. And so John Owen says, this is where we have the obedience of the life of Christ. The obedience of Christ was done for us. It is given to us. It is imputed to us. And it is our righteousness before God. You stand before God with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. By his obedience, we are made righteous. The free and the full pardon of sin is one of the most glorious blessings of the Christian life. That all those things that you have done, that your creator can look at you at your lowest state and can still say that he loves you through justification. And he wipes out your sins. That God has mercy. That he will abundantly pardon. That with him there is full and plentiful redemption. But there's more. We are admitted into God's favor. We are established in the beloved as Ephesians chapter 1 says. We are given God's favor which is eternal life. We have the privilege of access into the presence of God. We obtain the gift of eternal inheritance and eternal life, which can only happen through perfect righteousness. For our sake, He, that is God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Our passage tonight, Romans 4. When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. If ultimately it comes down to human works or cooperation with grace, if it ultimately the ground of your salvation is what you do, then that is not a gift. That is an obligation. Ophelema, the Greek word. It just means to, to, to settle accounts. Verse 5, though, says it, and Paul could not say it in any clearer way. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. It's a word for ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as Righteousness. This is the cornerstone of the gospel. God does not go around into the world trying to find what it is that will satisfy him according to righteousness. Because in justification, he makes it. And he doesn't make it by infusion. He makes it by imputation. He does not count people's sins against them. And he credits them as righteous because of the work of the, because of the, work of the Savior. God creates what he needs. To find one to be righteous. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Helpless in your sin, established in Christ. Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul's trying to make us 
convinced sinners and not careless sinners, isn't he? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, here it is, justified by his grace. This is Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's not of yourselves. It doesn't come out of you. It is God's gift. We all know how gifts work. That is how salvation works. It's a gift of God. A gift of God by His grace. Justified by His grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christian life, the obedience we are to live, is to be lived out of this once for all irreversible act of God. And because it is not merely the wiping away of sins, because it is the establishing of us as as righteous, it is an ongoing eternal privilege of the believer. It's an ongoing eternal privilege to us by uh, for the believer, and it comes by faith. We talked about that last week. What is faith? Knowing the gospel, assenting to the truthfulness of it, but then trusting and resting in the work of Christ for you. Knowing that his work covers your sin. Knowing that his work accounts you as righteous. It gives this ongoing privilege of the believer. For this, our confession says, we must hold fast to this foundation. We must never leave the tenets of the gospel. We must never think that we uh, have matured beyond it for all of the Christian faith is to be lived in this way. It's what it means to live a gospel-centered life, to understand that we rejoice in salvation by grace and when we rejoice in that and when we love our God more because of it, then we will catch ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit being sanctified. Rejoice in your justification and you will catch yourself being sanctified. We must hold fast to this foundation. There's always errors lurking at the door. There are always threats to the gospel of grace. And that's why we need to proclaim it and hold fast to it. My, one of my professors in seminary wasn't necessarily given to witty turns of phrase. He's trying to come up with the right thing to say in a classroom. He says, you run away from another gospel like you run away from a nuclear bomb. Right? All of us with the I think we're all at the same time thinking you can't really run away from a nuclear bomb, not the kind of thing you run away from. But he was making his point well enough, right? I mean, you you flee from false gospels like they are the plague. We ascribe, because of this, we hold fast to this foundation, we ascribe all glory to God, and we give him all the glory because it is he who saves by his grace, what we talked about this morning giving God all of the glory. Of course, related to that is we humble ourselves, as the confession says. Not only do we ascribe all glory to Him, we humble ourselves before Him by acknowledging to be such as we really are, convinced sinners, saved by grace. Joel Beakey says, every day we should say a simple prayer, I am a sinner, a servant, a small one, a saint. Acknowledging who we are, Uh, acknowledging that we have been made, now constituted to serve God because we've been saved through Christ, understanding that our work is just a small piece in the kingdom of God. God doesn't need any one of us individually. He could accomplish all of his purposes. He could accomplish it without Reverend Svensson. He doesn't need me to accomplish his eternal purposes in the church and in the world, but yet he involves us in his work. 
something that is a great joy. We rely and we rest upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, the confession says. We wrap ourselves in the death of Christ. We uh, glory in the merit of Christ which he has achieved for us. We understand that we can have confidence in approaching God and in here the story of Adam is reversed. Adam flees from God's presence. He tries to cover himself. He tries to hide himself. He runs away from God. But because of justification, we stand with full knowledge of who we are as sinners, convinced of our reality, of what we are, falling short of God's perfect law, falling short of his righteous standard. But we do not do what Adam does. We go to God in confidence. We pray with confidence, knowing that because of our Savior, He hears our prayer and He does not consume us. As we trust in His work, we are justified by His grace. So this frees our conscience of fear and terror and dread. Even with our sins, we can go boldly before our Savior, not run in fear and not run in terror. This is the blessing of justification. This is where our justification Consistent that this is a this is very clearly a legal term to mean to declare righteous. This is an act of God, not infusing his grace into us and, and making us to be something by a moral change, but rather imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. And this is an ongoing, eternal blessing and privilege of the believer that cannot be that cannot be reversed, that cannot be taken away. For all of these things we rejoice in it. We hold fast to the gospel. We ascribe all glory to God. We humble ourselves. We rely and rest on Christ alone. And we understand that we can have confidence in approaching our God. For he is a God who justifies the wicked. He looks at the sinner, cleanses her or him of sin, declares him or her to be righteous, all because of Christ. For that, we give thanks and we rejoice a wonderful gospel, and a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you. We pray that you would guide us onward. Father, that we would rejoice in the work of Christ for us. Be saved by grace. We give you all the glory for it. We thank you that you justify the ungodly, for that is what we are. We need your help, we need your grace, we need your salvation. May we hold fast to this always. And may we give you all the glory every step of the way. Guide us now by your Holy Spirit this week. Sanctify us in your truth. And Father, bring us back. It will be your will next Lord's Day to give you all the glory once more. In Christ's name, amen.